welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. I am I'm good. We've got a bunch of fun stuff to talk oh, about. We're we going to make a return to some science topics yep. today. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. I dug, I dug into my... Uh, my bag of tricks, and nothing came out because it was a black hole. So we're going to start with some uh, pre-flight checklist. And we, we're going to start actually with a question from a listener. So Chadwick wrote in uh, saying that in the last episode, Jason made a comment about the difference between launching from the West Coast of the United States versus the East Coast. Could you explain that a little bit more in the next episode? So Jason... Yeah, explain myself. Yeah, so what Chadwick said was, the last time I checked, the Earth rotates the same on both coasts. And what I was saying was that the Mars launch came from Vandenberg in California, and that's unusual because usually you launch from the East Coast so that you can use the uh, use the Earth's rotation as part of your velocity. And I understand now that embedded in that statement was an assumption that uh, Chadwick, at least, maybe other listeners, uh, did not did not make, which is this, which is one of the things that people who launch rockets like to do is launch them over unpopulated areas in case they fall, in case there's a rapid, unexpected disassembly. Um, this, by the way, they don't do this in China, and uh, there are like these villages that have had rocket parts fall on them. It's not good. It's not good. They don't do that here. So traditionally, I mean, and actually you see it with the um, the Ariane launches that come from British Guiana. It's the same thing. They're going out over the ocean. So Florida makes sense. They're right on the coast. They shoot it out over the Atlantic Ocean. And that's the direction of Earth's rotation. So they pick up the Earth's rotation too. Vandenberg, if you look at a map, you'll see that it's on the California coast. So they could, they could launch west over the Pacific, but you're fighting against the rotation of the Earth, that's not going to work. So why do they launch rockets from Vandenberg? They launch Vandenberg, Vandenberg launches rockets generally into polar orbits, where instead of going with the rotation of the Earth, they're going you know north south north south north south, which allows you to cover. So especially if you want to have like a a, a satellite that um, is in geosynchronous orbit, you would have that moving the same direction as the Earth. But if you want the best spy satellite, for example. You put it in a polar orbit, and it just kind of circles, and the Earth rotates under it, and you get coverage of the entire surface of the Earth. That is a polar orbit. You would get that by firing your rocket off north or south, right? If you look at where Vandenberg is, which is right by by Santa Barbara in California, one of the quirks of the North America North American coast and actually North and South American coasts is they aren't north-south. They're southeast to northwest. So, um, and Santa Barbara is actually at a part in the California coast where it sweeps kind of to the, uh, really sweeps out to the West. And as a result, if you're standing at Vandenberg or standing just on the beach in Santa Barbara and you look to the South, there is no land from there all the way to Antarctica. There's nothing but ocean. It is a huge expanse of open ocean. So it's great for polar 
launches. And in this case, they launched the Mars probe from there because they had enough power that they need, didn't need the boost. And that's the difference is the reason that most ones that are, are uh, going around the Earth uh, at, you know, with a, I don't even know the term equatorial or something like that, but, you know, going around along with the Earth's rotation are from Florida is not because the Earth rotates differently there, but because the safe flight path is east, which is what they want. As opposed to, if, you, if they launched from the east from Vandenberg, they would be going over all sorts of parts of Southern California, dropping Just rocket parts along good. the way. Not not ideal. So Vandenberg is all about yeah. launching to the south, and Kennedy Space Center is all about launching to the uh, to the east. But they have done some polar launches from there, of like shuttle launches, and th- those are ones that. Um, you know they were uh, they could be seen up the eastern seaboard. Those are the ones where people like see the shuttle launch in New York City. Is that kind of those were those kinds of orbits where they're going up the eastern the east coast again over the ocean. But that's the that's the same idea. They just you don't want to have a rocket explode over land if you can help it because uh, people live there. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that explains it well. It's um pretty pretty clever. Yeah, and if you think about, I mean, we I think we all. A lot of us orient everything north-south. So, like, if you've got a city grid, you sort of think of it as north-south-east-west. Right. And if the city grid is actually off a little bit, it gets really confusing. You're like, wait a second, this isn't north. It's actually northwest, right? It's easy to think, like, snap to the grid of the cardinal mm. directions. Yeah. And and the West Coast is a good example of that, where my favorite example is that um, Reno, Nevada is further west than Los Angeles, which doesn't make any sense because Nevada, of course, is to the east of California. But the California coast is not running north-south. It, re- it is pretty extremely running to the northwest. And one of the benefits of that is you can have a, uh, a rocket operation somewhere like Vandenberg and know that if you fire it off to the south, uh, you got no problems. There's, no, there's nobody out there all the way to Antarctica. And there's nobody in Antarctica. So basically, you can come all the way back up the other side for a while. And there's just there's no problems. All right, so uh, so moving on a little bit, uh, we spoke about the uh, Mars little satellites on the way with InSight, little CubeSats. CubeSats. And uh, Mars Cube 1 has uh, taken an image, so there's a, a picture and a link in the show notes. Uh, you know, firing up the CubeSat, making sure that its high-gain antenna is working uh, to make sure it can communicate with us. And in uh, the testing was an image of the uh, the Earth and the Moon, and you can see sort of the the spacecraft at the edges of the frame. Uh, but there we are. We're uh, you know uh, a blue dot uh, out there in the sky. You can see the Moon, and uh, looks like uh, at least Marco uh, one the CubeSats uh, up and running, and they're going to test the second one. And uh, so far, so good on the uh, on that new technology. You know, like we said, the first time CubeSats have been on an interplanetary mission. So so far, so good. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love it when spacecraft send pictures back. Speaking of which, we also talked about TESS, the exoplanet hunting spacecraft, and it sent back a picture too. Yeah, so this is uh, it's a picture of uh, just a, a small section of the sky that TESS will be able to cover. You know, it's one thing we talked about about TESS, that its field of view is very wide. And this is like one four hundredth of the amount of sky that it, that it uh, will be able to see. Um, but in this little snapshot, something like 200,000 stars and, uh, the image is, is really incredible. And it, it, to me, like it just speaks of the, the scale that Tess is looking at, right. That it is looking mm. at so much sky, 
uh, and hunt of its uh, of its exoplanets that it's it's really a huge field. It's kind of incredible actually they can they can monitor such a wide area over so much time. But uh, yeah, so we're two for two on spacecraft. Uh, I guess phoning home with their first images. Yeah, I like it. It's good that they're out there. Tesla's still got a little time to get in the right in the in the right spot, and it's got a loop around the moon and stuff like that. But it's uh, it's first light, right? Mm-hmm. It's taking pictures. It's good good stuff. Yeah, and that should be um, it should be fully operational sometime next month. I think I think it has the last burn on May thirtieth. Uh, so you know we're going to be talking about about tests uh, again. I think I think over the summer. Uh, and, and lastly, uh, in pre-flight checklist, we wanted to to mention uh, Tom Wolf, of course, the uh, the writer and journalist. He's well known in our circles uh, for being the author of the Right Stuff. But if you look at his um, at his history of, of being a writer, uh, extremely long list of works, uh, everything from. Uh, things like the right stuff, which is kind of considered like new journalism, so it's long form, in depth work. Um, so maybe blurring the lines between like pure, like what what you and I learned in school, like objective journalism with something a little bit closer, like feature writing, uh, novels, all sorts of stuff. Uh, really, an an impressive uh, decades long career in, in writing. But uh, he he passed away. Uh, Last week at the age of eighty-eight, so we just wanted to uh, to not let that go by without without commenting. Yeah, absolutely. That and if you haven't experienced the right stuff as a person listening to a space podcast, you should really do that. Carve out the time, read the book. It's a great book. Movie's great too. Definitely check it out. I uh, re- I have some real time follow up by the way, Steve. Okay. The the Moon Loop by Tess was actually a few days ago. It was May seventeenth. So they've already done their uh, closest pass on the Moon, and they're just kind of nestling now. A little doing doing some nesting, just getting into that final little detailed orbit to start science in June. So we want to get settled in. Anyway, you know. <laughs> good job, Tess. Yeah, that's right. But the moon moon thing already happened. We're already there. Okay, that brings us to perhaps the most exciting segment to be found on liftoff ever, hmm. other than the moon draft, perhaps, maybe, maybe, maybe. And that's something. Drum roll. We like to call SLS segment. Space Launch System Segment Explaining Geopolitics, Mechanical Systems, Engineering Achievements, News, and Trivia. SLS Segment! Ooh. Man, you gotta, take, you gotta kind of take a nap after, after naming it. <laughs> I know, that's right. We'll be back to the SLS <laughs> segment after these words from our sponsor. <laughs> so the news here this week with SLS is a recent element acceptance review. So this is one of many, many documents and schedules that look at all the various systems and components of SLS being built all around the country, in some cases all around the world, and looking at how they're going to integrate. So the uh, the concern at this point is the core stage, which uh, is now due to, to be completed at the end of May 2019, which may make the December 2019 date for EM1, which is still the date NASA is talking about, may make that a little bit a little bit tricky. And here's why. So when you look at a big project like this, I'm going to slip into my old like project management hat for a second. You have critical path items. So these are items that have to be done uh, in order at the right time for your project to, to meet its end. You know, if you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, bread is a critical path item, right? You got to have bread before you can put your sandwich together. Uh, 
with SLS, a lot of these critical path items have no margin in the timeline. So it's not like, oh, the course, the core stage ran over two weeks, but we had a buffer somewhere else. So it all kind of plays out in the end. That's not the case at this point in parts of the SLS timeline. So the concern is that if this is really the end of May, and if it slips again, then it's going to be difficult to hold uh, the end of the schedule being that December 2019 launch. Because remember, once it's built, there's still lots of testing to do. There's lots of integration to do, right? It's just one component. It's a very large, very important component. But just because one part is done, everything else has to line up with that schedule. So um, I think true to the the start of SLS segment, you know, we're going to be talking about about the schedule a lot because that's it's a big deal. And this uh, element acceptance review uh, definitely raises some concerns that that it's not going to hit the date. Is anyone surprised? S- <laughs> SLS segment. Woo! Oh boy! Uh, so we're going to talk about black holes today. Uh, speaking mm, of the SLS uh, schedule. <clears throat> oh boy! Oh boy! But first, I want to tell you about our friends at Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, or maybe you're a photographer and want to create a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you want to be like Jason and write an award-winning blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. There's nothing to install, no server patches to worry about, no upgrades in the middle of the night. Squarespace just has it covered. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff with Squarespace. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support. Uh, It's excellent. You can talk to a human, get your questions answered. Uh, they allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, which we know is so important for a web project. And again, all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace to power the blog at Relay FM. So if we have a new show or a live show or something else to announce, we can uh, write a blog post, drag in images, we can write Markdown, and it's all ready to go very easily right from within the web browser. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you, dear listener, can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you do decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff, the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Are we going to fall into a black hole? I mean, I hope not. Uh, if we do, no, I don't know how good, the don't. podcast could escape. I don't know if it's if MP. I don't know the escape velocity of an MP3. Uh, so. Well, yeah, what is the speed of podcasts? I don't know. Um, yeah, okay. So we're going to do a little science explainer today. That's what's going to happen, and I'm going to tell you all about. Well, I'm going to tell you some about. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about black holes. Just a little bit. Because you wanted to know, right? I mean, you said, let's do a science segment. And I, and I was thinking about it. And I thought, well, we could talk about black holes. They're fun. And they are fun. All right. Um, what is a black hole? They are the ultimate extreme object. That's uh, a line from an uh, astronomy lecturer that I've talked about before, which is uh, Richard Pogge at Ohio State University. Um, he's got, well, I'll link in the show notes to his, his class about black holes. I, I listened to his entire astronomy class, actually all three of his astronomy 
uh, astronomy classes that he podcast back in the day for people who haven't checked those out yet you should the ultimate extreme object the idea here is a black hole is an object in the universe with impossibly strong gravity gravity so strong that nothing not even light can escape that's like the standard that's like it's calling card as people say nothing not even light can escape and that's why it's a black hole because nothing comes out of it and it doesn't have a thing you can see because the light like literally doesn't come out of it so you can't see it you have to infer it by uh what's around it uh, and how do uh, how do how does it work? Well, it turns out one of the things about black holes is the more stuff that they uh, that they suck in, the more stuff you dump into it, they just get bigger. They just suck it in, and the mass increases, and they get bigger. That's it. That's that's how we interact with black holes: is they eat things and get bigger. That's literally it. Um, but there are black holes at the center of most or perhaps all galaxies. There's some thought that they may be a key part of the formation of galaxies. There's also some thought that they might be a fundamental outcome of galaxy formation. But either way, it seems like galaxies have big black holes at their center, including ours, by the way. We have one. It's uh, not near us, which is probably good. They don't emit light, as I said, because they can't escape. But we do see them... Because in large part because of the energy that is created when matter is being pulled into the black hole and there are tidal forces and they rip it rips matter apart and you end up with uh, because of the extreme gravity around a black hole, you end up having uh, things like x-rays being emitted. So if you if you could picture it a black hole you can't see, but around it is maybe a halo of matter, maybe gas that's being sucked in and as it's doing so it's being, uh, heated up and it's emitting radiation and that we can see so that's that's so looking for x-rays is like a big way that you try to find a uh, black hole but the x-rays aren't coming from the black hole they're coming from the matter that's getting sucked into the black hole so that's how we can intuit their existence we can also look at the gravity gravitational effects um, oftentimes you look at a, like at the center of our g- galaxy for example you look at the stars and how fast they're rotating and you find out that they're rotating around an object that you can't see that must have an enormous mass. And you can infer from that that that's probably a black hole because you can't see it, but it's got a, a huge amount of mass. And anything, as I'll describe in a moment, anything with that amount of mass is probably a black hole because above a certain amount of mass, black holes are almost an inevitability because of uh, because of mass and density. Right. They, uh, the, uh, Stephen, you may be asking... How big is a black hole? How's it, how big is a black hole, Jason? Hey, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I thought you might be asking that question. This is one of the funny things about black holes is that they kind of ruin math. Um, <laughs> because technically, black holes have zero radius, which means that given however much mass they have, they have infinite density. Because if you have no radius, you're a point. And a lot of matter so your density is infinite there's no size of a black hole there is the size of what we call the event horizon which is the point of no return it's where you can't see inside anything that happens inside the event horizon is a mystery it is an event that we can't see that's why they call it the event horizon and that's all based on the mass of the black hole the bigger the mass the bigger the event horizon the event horizon is usually me- measured by something called the Schwarzschild radius Schwarzschild radius it's named after a guy who was actually a physics uh student 
who worked with Einstein, and he died in World War I. But he had already come up with this thought about the, the radius of this object. And that's, that is the measurement of the event horizon. So uh, don't, get, don't get too close to it. Because it is, it's just one of these weird things. It is an outcome of um, modern physics and relativity. This idea that there is a point that uh, that you could call a singularity—that's what they call it—a singularity. It has no size essentially. It is a point of infinite density, which is really weird. It, it is really weird. It's one of those things that really—it sort of hurts your brain if you if you think about it because it's so different from almost anything else in the universe, right? This idea that there's no radius, but all this density, like in the same point, uh, it's it's really hard to wrap your, it's hard for me at least to wrap my mind around it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't fall, like so many things in advanced physics, especially in rel- involving relativity and quantum mechanics, um, the, the further, you, the closer you look, the further you get away from normal human experiences, and that makes it much more hard to conceptualize. And black holes are an idea that, when you try to conceptualize them, you think of a, you know, you think of a a, a dark star, which was one of the ways they sort of called called this at some point. But it's not. It's it's weird and warps space and time in ways that are not um, things that we would apply to our reality every day. And that, that makes them weird. I think that's also what makes them cool and interesting and why people, uh, you know, it's like a um, black holes are kind of like Darth Vader, right? It's like, it's like, he's the bad guy. He does bad stuff. Uh, he's a little scary, but he's also kind of interesting because he's cool and different and he does things that are unusual and you know, a charismatic. The universe needs a charismatic villain, and perhaps that is the black hole. I don't know. Um, a lot of a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows with black holes in them. We'll get to that later. But um, I want to I want to give you a recipe now, how to make a black hole. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, you, you need some flour. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> set your oven to infinite temperature, <laughs> and uh, you're done. Okay. Um, we talked a lot in episode twenty, actually about the life cycle of a star. That was where we talked about the life and death of our own sun. Um, and and if you think about it, I love this. I love this one of my favorite subjects in all of science, which is how stars form, the lives they li- they uh, they lead, and then how they die. And I mentioned a few episodes ago how, um, how uh, a space probe had built its own Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which is basically like the... Uh, where it's a chart of where the stars are in their life cycle and this is a famous chart but this one uh spacecraft had just measured its own just from its own measurements it was able to build that diagram which is pretty amazing um and that's how we track like the life cycle of a star so um low mass stars and our sun counts there are lots of stars much smaller than the sun. Those are the red dwarves that we've talked about here. They can tend to be a little flary, but there are an awful lot of them and they live a very long time because the smaller a star is, the longer it lives because it's able to burn cooler. So it's using its fuel less. And that means that it lasts a very, very long time. But our, our sun is also a low mass star. It is not an enormous giant star. And as a result, they're on the main sequence for a long time, like our star is. And then eventually at the end of their lives, as we said in episode 20, it'll puff up and become a red giant. And then eventually it'll slough off all of its outer envelope. And what will be left at the center is sort of a core remnant, a stellar remnant called a white dwarf. Now, 
That's not what happens with really big stars. With really big stars, they burn hot. Like I said, the bigger, the hotter they burn and the shorter their lives. So they burn hot, live fast, die young. Um, they're on the main sequence. And then they, as they die, they become a red supergiant, then a blue supergiant, and then a red supergiant again. It has all to do with what elements are being fused in the core. They're burning through all of their fuel. Then they move on to the next element, burn through all of that. It keeps on going. If they are, um, so at the end of this process, the, the question is sort of like, what is in the core? How big is that core? Not the not the overall star, but the core of the star. And if it's between four and eight stellar masses, so four and eight times the size of uh, uh, the or the mass of our star at the core, uh, what happens is it ends up being a white dwarf. Uh, it's a little bit different composition than the white dwarf coming from our sun. It's because it's fused more elements, so it's what they call an oxygen, neon, magnesium white dwarf, but it's still a white dwarf. However, if that core is eight stellar masses and up this is i think we talked about this in an episode two this is that really bad day yeah where the it, it fuses all the way to iron and then the iron core collapses because it collapses under its own weight there's so much iron and it's so dense that it collapses entirely and you get a supernova and that's where um it goes all the way down to what what is left at the end after the massive out, outpouring of energy is a neutron star, which is this really weird object that uh, it's so dense that the only thing that's holding it up is it's no longer the 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 iron sort of the uh, the nuclear force holding the iron. It is now what's called the neutron degeneracy pressure, which is this super weird thing that's not not widely understood like exactly what a neutron star looks like on its insides but that's enough to hold it and so then it becomes this ultra dense neutron star um however if that neutron star in other words that core is itself more than uh three or four solar masses what happens and the answer is it's still too big it's blown off everything else it used to be an 8, 9, 10, 12, 15 solar mass star. Blew all that off. Still got three or four solar masses. It's too big for the neutron degeneracy, degeneracy pressure, easy to say, to keep it afloat. It's, it, it's still too dense. And at that point, something very weird happens, which is there is nothing left to stop it from collapsing. There is no force acting on that that can keep it from uh, collapsing all the way down to a single point of zero radius and infinite density. And that is a black hole. That's it. That's it. Like literally there's no other force left in the universe to keep it a shape. <laughs> and instead at that point, it is a black hole. Um, that's not the only necessarily kind of black hole that's out there. Um, of course, black holes can swallow other matter. They can merge. Different black holes can merge together. We've seen that, actually, with the gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. We've seen neutron star collisions. We've seen black hole mergers. Those are things that we can see with gravitational waves, so we know that they're out there. But there is also this theory, at least, that there are things called primordial black holes. And the idea there is at the very early parts of the, of the universe, when energy and pressure were um, completely unlike they were in the rest of the lifetime of the universe. It's possible that black holes could have formed then, too. But uh, there's not so much evidence for primordial black holes as for the usual kind, which is just a star got really big, and it blew up, and the core that remained was so dense 
that it was able to, it had a runaway collapse all the way to this infinite point, which again, is very hard to picture. It it is hard to picture. And it, uh, like we said earlier, everything about these is weird. Like the thing that really uh, sort of blows my mind if you stop and think about it is that they still have normal mass. So if you took our solar system and you replaced our sun with a black hole of one solar mass, yes, we would all freeze to death. But mm-hmm. the planets would basically keep orbiting where they are. <laughs> they're not getting yeah. they're not getting pulled in. They're staying put because the, the mass is the same um, if you make it the, the one solar mass size. Yeah, one solar mass is one solar mass. So it would basically be the same and the, all, the, all the planets would keep orbiting. But now it would be very cold because there'd be a black hole. And so it wouldn't be radiating on us. But we would all still be there because uh, beyond a certain very limited radius around the black hole, things are kind of normal in terms of gravity. Gravity still works the way it does. Now, there are some weird points. Um, I I mentioned the Schwarzschild radius. Um, If you're inside three times that radius, um, you can't have a stable orbit. Every orbit, unless you are firing an engine, will take you into the black hole. Um, There's no such thing as just we're in a stable orbit inside that. Um, but the Schwarzschild radius is not, these are small objects. Event horizon, if you, if you consider the event horizon, it's not a, it's not particularly big, even on a large black hole. Like again, the black hole itself is a, is, is a zero radius, but there is the Schwarzschild radius, which you can use to figure out the, uh, the event horizon. Um, a black hole with one and a half solar masses would have a Schwarzschild radius of about four and a half kilometers. So really we're saying, hey, spaceship, in all of space around this black hole, just don't get within 14 kilometers of it, right? Like there are going to be a lot of other things getting sucked into it with radiation. There are going to be other problems way before you get to your unstable orbit. Um, And if you're really snuggled up close, one and a half sword shield radii away, um, there's a really fun phenomenon where if you shine a light, the photons will orbit the black hole. (laughs) They won't go out. They'll just orbit they'll be in a sort of a steady state they can't escape so they kind of go in just orbit around the black hole which is would also be super there's a lot of weird stuff about black holes is what i'm saying a, a lot of super weird stuff there's a lot of weird, um, weird stuff and including gra- relativity do you like yeah. the do you did you like jack and uh pogey has this uh uh Bla- jack and jill story which is one of you is falling toward the black hole and the other one is watching that's a pretty good pretty good story <laughs> It's very upsetting. So, so what happens if you fall toward a black hole? So uh, as you fall toward a black hole, the universe around you would speed up because, again, strong gravity equals strong relativity. Uh, things would begin to blue shift and get distorted. But from the other person's perspective, so if I'm watching Jason get pulled into a black hole, uh, mm. Jason is getting red shifted and is seeming to slow down. Um Super, super strange. Um, yeah, yeah, because it's it's the, the strong gravity uh, is bending time and space, so there are relativistic effects. The closer you get to light speed or or super strong gravity, so in this case, um, it's the it's the equivalent of going really fast in a spaceship as you fall to the black hole. So from your perspective, your clock is still ticking, tick, 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 and the the universe outside. If you were looking closely, everything would seem to have sped up. And blue shifted because the light is coming to you faster because they're moving faster to relative to you. But uh, from the other perspective, 
if you were looking at a tick, 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 or in the example, um, the Jack and Jill example, it's like a flashlight flashing once a second. The closer you get to the black hole, that that just that flash keeps slowing down until it's like days, weeks, months before, and then there's finally one last flash, and that's that's it. Um, technically, that last flash, if it happens as you're crossing the event horizon, would go on forever, and that you are a faint after image it's a faint after image of yourself crossing the event horizon extremely red shifted to the point where like light becomes radio waves it's super red shifted um forever and that that little last after image is all we see if you're falling into the black hole though you don't notice anything because the event horizon isn't a physical object it's just the point of no return so your clock is still ticking and um, you're you're uh, you're continuing to fall toward the black hole, and you pass the event horizon, and the universe kind of winks out. But um, but you're still fine until you are ripped apart by the tidal forces of the gravity of the black hole into what um, Stephen Hawking called spaghettification, <laughs> which is everything gets elongated, so you'd be ripped into 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 spaghetti very quickly, and. It's a tidal force, which basically means like the gravity increases so fast that if you can imagine it, um, if your 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 body, your feet are pointed at the black hole, the gravity at your feet is way more than the gravity at your head, so you get pulled apart. And that's I don't recommend it. It's is what I'm saying. Don't go into black. Probably hole. unpleasant. I do, yeah, it's not it's not a good idea. So there's nothing. There's no party happening beyond the event horizon. Okay, it's not good. What is happening there? It's the universe's ultimate VIP lounge. Yeah, and ultimately the matter that made you made up you um, falls into the singularity, and your mass is added to the singularity, and the black hole grows slightly because the more mass it eats, the bigger it gets. And you would think that that would go on forever, but it's not true. Black holes, it has only recently relatively been discovered, are not eternal. Um, if you look at black holes thinking about classical physics, they're really black. They're just, they are, they never omit anything. They just stay what they are forever. But Stephen Hawking ruined everything again, as he, as he always did, just messing things up. Because if you look at quantum mechanics... You get an explanation for this thing that has become become known as Hawking radiation, which is radiation emitted by, by black holes. And you're saying to yourself, wait a second, how can black holes emit radiation? Because light can't escape. And it's this super, one way to look at it is this super weird phenomenon uh, that I don't know if we've talked about on this show, but it's a, a weird phenomenon of, of quantum physics um, where there is this constantly in all of space, um, particles and antiparticles come into existence and annihilate themselves they're often called virtual particles because they they exist but you know do they exist because essentially like a proton and an antiproton appear they annihilate each other and then there's nothing left and this is just like the background of space that's weird it's another subject for another time about why it's like that but around black holes gravity is so strong that you have some cases a few but some cases where those particle pairs will be will just emerge from the nature of space one of them will get sucked into the black hole and the other one won't and the one that gets sucked into the black hole is considered of having a negative energy 
and then the one that is not is positive energy. It, it, it escapes from the black hole. And the way, if you view this from a big picture perspective, it means stuff is coming out of the black hole and the black hole is getting slightly less energetic. It is getting smaller. Um, and I know that's really weird, but that's the idea of Hawking radiation. So it's, it's not necessarily that the black hole is emitting its own information, and there's a lot of debates about that. There are a lot of weird esoteric things that I'm not getting into, like about whether black holes have hair or not. The hairy black hole bet that, uh, that Stephen Hawking and Kip Thorne, who's a professor at Caltech, made about black holes. There's a lot of, a lot of questions about how black holes behave. But this one seems to have stuck, which is basically black holes do emit radiation. The smaller the black hole, the hotter it gets. And again, we're, just, we're talking about heat in just like individual particles above absolute zero. But the smaller it gets, the hotter it gets. Which means, in theory, the, eventually every black hole in the universe will explode in a flash. And it's not a massive flash, but a flash of radiation. In fact, it's always the same amount because it's the amount emitted at the point where the black hole evaporates. So even, whether you've got a big black hole or a small black hole, they all just kind of keep emitting Hawking radiation over very long timescales until that last moment where the last bit is emitted in a flash and it's done. Um, so black holes aren't forever, but the good news, if you love black holes, is that they will last longer than anything else in the universe by a lot. We're about 14 billion years into the history of the universe. So that's 1.4 times 10 to the ninth years. Okay. After 10 to the 12th years, which is a trillion years, there won't be any new stars being formed. Like the sort of era of star formation will be over. That's a trillion years. So that's from 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 12th. Um, so that, that's, that's a long way. <laughs> um, stellar mass black holes will be evaporating around like 10 to the 67 years. And supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies will probably not have evaporated until about 10 to the 100th years. So what we're saying is this is on a time scale that is essentially unimaginable. What that also means is for the vast majority, like 99.99999 lots of nines percent of the life of the universe, all that will be in it essentially is black holes. And even they will slowly fl flash and be gone until there's nothing left. And that's the end of the universe. Yeah. Yeah, I put a skull emoji in our document because that's the all folks, that's the end. But the idea here, you know, that I want people to walk away from is black holes do evaporate, but it is on time scales so large that probably unless there were very small black holes created during the very beginning of the universe, primordial black holes, there probably haven't been any black holes that have evaporated because the time scales just don't work out. It will take a very long time. Like there won't be any stars left by the time the black holes are evaporating. So a very, very long time from now. So the good news is we basically got a trillion years left in a universe with stars. And a trillion years is a long time because we've only been doing this at all for 14 billion years. Yet another reason black holes make, uh, make everyone's head hurt. Yeah, they're weird. They're weird. They're weird creatures. Um, and 
there are lots of because they twist up space time there are lots of theories about like well if they spun and you entered one you could possibly end up in a twisted bit of space time that would uh, lead you to a wormhole that would take you somewhere else in space time which which it might except then you think about it for a while and they do the math and like or probably that's either wrong or you would die like there there's you know there there are lots of interesting stories you can spin about black holes but the fact is that they're as interesting as they are, they're on another level, they're really boring because what they are is just a big gravity source that eats things and you don't get them back. And that's it. They're, that's their that's their feature. Um, there's a very good book. I mentioned Kip Thorne. Um, he wrote a book that I read that I like called Black Holes and Time Warps. If you want to read all about this sort of stuff, it's a good book. Check it out. Um, there's an okay movie about this. Kip Thorne was the science advisor for Christopher Nolan's movie interstellar which is it's kind of long it's not perfect by any means i liked it okay i didn't love it some people really loved it i thought it was fine but um one of the things that's interesting about it is that they try to depict what a black hole would really look like which is not like it looks in most movies and play with some of the relativistic effects of intense gravity right and and that that's what is is going on in Interstellar. So check it out for that. If nothing else, the relativistic effects are fun, right? Because the closer you get to it, the slower um, time moves for you compared to the rest of the universe, and that that leads to complications for the characters in Interstellar. There was a Doctor Who episode last year about the same idea, where there was a spaceship that was rocketing away from a black hole, and if you were on the bottom floors of the spaceship by the engines, it was. Um, time was passing very fast and if you were up at the top it was passing very slowly and you know every every floor of the ship was moving at a different speed that was also kind of a clever thing but um you're more having fun with relativity at that point than you are with the actual black hole because the black hole is just eating stuff when it also i should say like we said uh, before it is just mass. It, 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 it's no more voracious than any other object with mass in terms of sucking things toward it. It's not an open vacuum cleaner that is just kind of like prowling around eating things. It's, you know, it will eat them if it gets the chance, but that would be true of our sun. Like if something gets close to the sun, its gravity will pull it in and it'll hit the sun and that'll be that. It's not that different in that way it's just kind of the surroundings of it that are that are extra weird well i feel educated thank you sure i mean i'm sure somebody will write in and say well you you got this detail slightly wrong i think i I think i mentioned the the stellar masses wrong because it's the initial stellar masses and then the core stellar masses are later you know um the idea here is to give you an overview that is hopefully enough for you to learn some stuff about black holes without getting so bogged down in details that it gets super confusing. There are great books about about black holes. The Kip Thorne book is a great one. So if you want a lot of detail, if you want to know whether black holes have hair or not and why Stephen Hawking had to pay off a bet that he made with Kip Thorne, uh, it's in the book. (laughs) So I would say you can check that out. Um, uh, Hawking describes black hole stuff too in um, A Brief History of Time, among the many other things that he talks about. And in, I think there's even an illustration of spaghettification that happens in, I want to say it's in the Errol Morris documentary, A Brief History of Time, which is about the concepts that are in the yeah. book by Stephen Hawking. So there's different ways you can get at it. But I think if you want like the pure kind of black hole and relativity weirdness, that Kip Thorne book is the way to go. Cool. 
if you uh, if you want to learn more about black holes, check out the the stuff that uh, Jason pulled this from. There's some links over on the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash seventy three. Uh, you can get in touch with us there. Of course, there's an email link, or you can find us uh, elsewhere on the internet. The show, we have a Tumblr where we post links and stuff, liftoffpodcast.space. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoffpodcast. Uh, you can find Jason there as Snell, and you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.